Our second reading is uh, Psalm 145. It's on page uh, 659 of our Pew Bibles. We're going to read through the uh, 21 verses of Psalm 145. It's one of those uh, passages of Scripture that seems very straightforward, uh, but is actually very deep and beautiful. And it encompasses virtually all the themes of the Bible in one passage. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made and all you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of your glory, the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendour of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving towards all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him and to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Thank you, uh, Greg. Well, friends, let's join our hearts in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm. Psalm full of praise for you, for all that you are, Lord, to your people. And as David gave praise to you, Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us, Lord, to give praise to you. What can I praise God for in my own life? In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, friends, we begin with this question. What can I praise God for? What can you praise God for this morning in your life? Uh, If you were given a a slip of paper, I was almost tempted to do that this morning. Put some paper out there for you to write it down. What would you write? What would you say? What would you put down on that list? What can I praise God for? Maybe it might be, well, I can praise God for health. Alright? The fact that we are breathing this morning, this heart is pumping, your lungs are working, it's all happening. Praise and thanks to God for that. Perhaps you can give praise and thanks to God for your family. Praise God for family. What would life be without family? 
What would life be without friends? I'd be really boring, wouldn't it? Without friends, relationships. Life is about relationships as well. How we meet up with people, we catch up, we talk, we communicate via Facebook, texting, emails, what else? Well, anyway, we are communicating all the time. We speak over the phone, over the phone, yes. I mean, that mobile phone that you carry around everywhere you go. And you see people working on it all the time. And you're working and something happens and a text comes through and somebody wants to reply almost instantaneously. And you look back at the phone and think, man, why didn't I look at that message ten hours ago? So we're in a constant communication bubble. We speak all the time. We relate with people. We give praise and thanks to God perhaps for that this morning. So if this question was put to you as well as to myself, how will I and you respond? What can I praise God for? Think for a moment about the things that you can praise God for. What are they? Perhaps there is someone here this morning who may not believe in God and this question might be totally irrelevant for you. And if you are such a person, I hope that you will by God's grace consider who God is this morning. And when you leave this place, that you will go out of this place singing the praises of our God. Alright, that's my prayer as well. So this morning we're going to look at uh, this psalm. It's, uh, it's a fairly lengthy psalm, but we're going to look at uh, these two verses. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever, and I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Psalm 145. Well, friends, before we look at our text this morning, let me give you some background information uh, to Psalm 145. Psalm 145 is the last of David's Psalms. David is the author of most of the Psalms. There are, in fact, 150 Psalms, as we know. Someone asked me recently, when are you going to preach through Psalm 119? So we'll work our way through that at some, some stage, go through it, maybe through a year or so, might be. Who knows? Well, there are, as we know, 150 Psalms. 75 of those are attributed to David. And psalm 145 is the last of what we call an acrostic psalm. An acrostic psalm is a psalm where each verse or a group of verses begins with one of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. I looked at my Hebrew Bible. I try and occasionally look at that when I am struggling with a Hebrew word. I looked at this psalm, Psalm 145, and saw that each sentence in this psalm has a letter of the Hebrew alphabet attached to it. In this psalm, it has one letter of the Hebrew alphabet short, and hence it has 21 verses instead of 22. We won't get into the uh, issue of that, but that's what we have here, 21 uh, verses. So let me just say a few things about David who wrote this psalm. You see, few biblical figures are as important in the history of redemption in God's plan as David, the son of Jesse, was. After Saul uh, proved to be a great failure, as we read in 1 Samuel, the Lord came to the prophet judge Samuel and instructed him to anoint a new king who would replace Saul. And Samuel goes to the house of Jesse. And there is David. 
And so David became the king, in fact the greatest king of ancient Israel. David was also a talented musician. The psalm reflects that uh, aspect of his musical abilities. And notice the heading of the psalm. A psalm of praise of David. This is the only psalm that has a heading of this nature. A psalm of praise of David. See, while the psalms are one of praise, Psalm 145 stands out. One writer put it this way. David saved his best for the last. Psalm 145. And the attributes and the acts of God form the overall theme of Psalm 145. And as a psalm of praise, the object of praise is clearly stated right there in the start. I will extol you, my God, the King. That's how it is presented for us. And so verses 1 and 2, which is our text for this morning, sets, I believe, the mood, it sets the tone of the entire psalm. This psalm is a psalm of exuberance, of praise. When is the last time you praised the Lord? When is the last time I praised the Lord? When is the last time that you sat in your comfy lounge room chair? You sat there and just praised God. Or maybe you were on your knees praising God. You see, I think sometimes we've forgotten the art of praise to our God. We're very quick to come to God and to bring our prayer request to Him, right? We are very quick to shoot out those arrow prayers. For example, you're driving in a car park and you can't find the car park. You say, God, give me a car park. Very quick to do that, perhaps. What about praise to our God? You see, Dr. Mon- Dr. Montgomery Boyce in um, Psalm 145 um, says this, isn't it? Psalm 145 is indeed, it says, a monumental praise psalm. A fit summary of all David had learned about God during a long lifetime of following hard after the Almighty. It is also an appropriate transition to the final Alleluia Psalms that close the Psalter. A monumental praise psalm. That's what Psalm 145 is according to Dr. Montgomery Boyce. A fit summary of all that David had learned about God. See, Psalm, the psalmist says here in our text, I will extol you, my God. Two things this morning, the personal relationship that we see that David has with this God, and the personal praise. It all comes down to that personal aspect of David's life. Well, friends, the personal relationship. David has been on a long journey in his life. It was a journey which had both the up moments and the down moments. Just like you and myself, right? Do you have the up moments in your life when you're singing, you're worshipping, you're whistling while you work? There are down moments when you feel your world has fallen apart. Have you had those moments when you feel everything has turned upside down? And you begin to wonder, where is God? And the psalmist, David, has been there. May briefly give you the lead up to David becoming the king of Israel. Remember how Samuel went to God and said, to the, said that the people 
wanted a king because the other nations had kings. 1 Samuel 8, you can read about it. And, 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 and God's people said, look, we're looking around, everyone else seems to be having kings, why don't we have a king? You see, therefore Israel wanted a king. And up until that point, Israel's king, who was Israel's king? Come on. Who was Israel's king up to that point? It was God. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, was the king. But the people wanted a king to represent them. There was no earthly, earthly king at the time, and God said that they could have a king. But the king of Israel had to be accountable to God. And so Saul was anointed as Israel's king. And we read in, in 1 Samuel how Saul did his own thing, and God rejected him as a king, and he was... He died and his sons and so forth. And in Second Samuel chapter 5, we read of David anointed as king over the united Israel at the age of 30. David was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 40 years. Judah was 7 years and 6 months and in Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And as king of Israel... He ushered in the golden age of Israel. He extended the borders and the boundaries of Israel. This little land, Israel, this monarchy of a land, became a leading world power under the leadership of King David. And humanly speaking, friends, this historical reality is based on the leadership of David. David was not only king, but he was a mighty warrior in the, Isra- in the history of Israel. You see, we have our own army generals in Australia who are well respected and honored for their service to the nation, and rightly so. Okay? Uh, just this last week on Monday evening, I attended a book launch uh, for the book that's titled uh, Maestro John Monash. Australia's greatest citizen general. And Tim Fisher, who was the former Deputy Prime Minister, uh, was, uh, uh, was the one who had written this book and he, he spoke at the launch. And I was fascinated listening about the life of Sir John Monash. He was a remarkable man. John Monash had, had a Doctor of Laws, Melbourne, Doctor of Engineering, Melbourne, Doctor of Civil Law, Oxford, Doctor of Laws, Cambridge. <laughs> he was a great civil engineer. The city of Monash is named after him. He was Australia's greatest heroes. Today we have the Monash Freeway that's named after him. He was a scholar and so we have Monash University named after him. In fact, the Vice Chancellor was there at the opportunity of meeting on on that Monday night. See, this man made a tremendous impact. But Sir John Monash was a voluntary soldier who rose to the highest rank in the Australian Army by the end of World War I. And Major General Sir John Monash was one of our country's most distinguished soldiers during the First World War. And in 1918, King George V knighted him on the battlefield for his role in the Battle of Hamel Hill. You see, and many historians consider John Monash to be the, most, the foremost allied military commander of the First World War. In fact, Field Marshal Montgomery, the famous British Army commander in the Second World War, wrote this about Sir John Monash. 
I would name Sir John Monash as the best general on the Western Front in Europe. Now, think about David. I wonder what kind of award David would have received if he served in our army today. What is the highest award that David would have received? Would he have been acknowledged? See, as a young boy, David slew Goliath. And remember how the people sang praises about David. 1 Samuel 29. Saul has struck down his thousands and David is tens of thousands. And David was the greatest, I think, military general in the history of Israel. And David was not just a great military general, he was also a great poet. Look at the Psalms. He was a musician. I mean, a multifaceted, talented guy. This, this guy, David. And the Psalms were designed for the singing in the Jewish community. Remember when Saul was given to fits of rage, when he was angry, when he couldn't control his mind. He said to his helpers, bring someone who could play music for me so that I will soothe away. I mean, music, does it give you a soothing effect? You know, I listen to 91.5. But some in my family think that's weird. Because they want pop, pop. Poppy stuff. And I love the, the psalms that takes me to another world and brings me back. You see, music, it plays a role, doesn't it? How many of you listen to music all the time in your iPods and your phones and look at people? They're, they're moving around, bopping around. It's music. Music to the soul. Some husbands try and sing to their wives. Well, I try and sing sometimes, but it doesn't work. You see, music, it does things, isn't it? And, and David was a musician. You see, the Psalms are designed for singing. See, David played his music skillfully with softened the heart. I will extol you. And David comes out. And this David, the great warrior, king, the mastermind in Israel, the musician, the poet, he comes out. And he says, Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King. You see, the word extol means to praise, to exalt, to elevate to a high position, or to lift up. You see, David knew his God. And he had this relationship with the God of heaven and earth. My God. Notice that. I will exalt you, my God, my King. This was a deep and personal relationship with God. Reminds me of another psalm. Psalm 23. How does it begin? The Lord is your shepherd. No. The Lord is my shepherd. It's a personal thing, isn't it? A relationship with God is a personal thing. It's the most amazing relationship that one can ever have in your life. Don't you think so? And that's what we see here. David chooses to raise, to hide the name of God. The name for God here that is used here in the Hebrew text is the name Elohim, which means the name that signifies power. And David says, I want to praise you, extol you, the God of power in my life. What a relationship. See, God's name is most powerful about every other name. 
It's a humbleness of heart to God the King. It is adoration to God. This is praise to God. He had a personal relationship. That's the first thing. And then we move on and we see the personal praise. Every day I will praise you. You see, there are five things, I think. You might come up with others, but I'll come up with five. About God that caused David to praise God for this, uh, in this text. We'll quickly work our way through. Verses 3 to 6. David praised God for his greatness. Look at that. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. I remember singing... Um, you know, when I became a Christian, I had never been to kids' church. Can you believe that? I'd never been to a youth group all my life. <laughs> right? And never did I expect to end up being a minister in the first place. That was not in the radar. But when I became a Christian, I learned some new songs. And singing became something that I've never sung before. I thought, wow, this is great. Let me sing. And one of the songs that I learned to sing was, Great is the Lord. Great, uh, great is the Lord, great is my Savior. So it go, went like that, right? It's a great song. I just get up and sing my heart out. Great is the Lord in the city of our God. You remember that song? Oh, some of you are nodding your heads. That's good. Another song that I learned to sing was Jehovah Jireh. Uh, Jehovah Jireh, my provider is Christ. I'll stop. Let's see. The greatness of God. See, God is a great God, and David is focusing on and, and, and one generation. He says to, is to be praised for his greatness is unsearchable. On, on the glorious splendor of your majesty, on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might and your awesome deeds, and I will declare the great your greatness. You see, David praises God for his greatness. Why? Because of his wondrous works, his glorious splendor, his mighty acts. I see this as David praising God for the greatness in creation. You see, friends, I want to make this point clear. God has created this world. And as Christians, we believe that it is God who created this world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, was without form and void. And I do emphasize a crucial, critical issue. And that is that God created this world out of nothing. Ex nihilo, as they would call it. The point is that from the beginning, there was nothing apart from God. And what exists apart from God was brought into being by him. And David is praising God. And Genesis claims this creator God. And as Christians, friends, we must continue defending the existence of God and his work of creation against the onslaught, I believe, of atheistic Evolutionists. Don't you think so? That's one of the biggest challenges. They'll challenge you on God as creator. And if you get that wrong, everything is wrong. Further, what do we see here? David says, it is beyond my comprehension. Isaiah said this, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is... Unsearchable. One generation shall commend your work to another. Further, friends, David, I believe, praise God for his goodness. Verses 7 to 10. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. I can expand on a lot of these things this morning. It says, God is good. Why? Why is God good? Look at the text. The Lord is 
gracious. Right? The Lord is merciful. The, the God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Do you have an anger problem? Do you get angry very quickly? Where the sparks are flying everywhere. There's an argument in your home and the books are flying. Um, if you're in the kitchen, the parents may be flying. They're darting. Do you have an anger problem? You see, look at what... I mean, if ever God was to be angry, he has lots to be angry for, right? In my life, in yours. But God is... Look at the texture. I mean, that's a text that you can preach a fantastic sermon. The Lord is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in mercy and steadfast love. Remember that. God's love for us is so amazing. He's gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger and he abounds in steadfast love. This is the goodness of God. He's good to all men, even to his enemies. Wayne Grudem Systematic theology makes the point the goodness of God means that God is the finest standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. Third thing, God is good because of his governance. Verses 11 to 13, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom. Have a look at your text. You see, this weekend, we have the G20 summit, right? And if you saw the motorcade of uh, President Obama coming, they call that, that vehicle the beast, the big massive beast on our streets in Sydney. The G20. We have, oh, the, well, the, the car. That's what I meant. Right. And then we have warships that are outside of the waters of Australia. It's, just, it's all happening. The streets are closed and everything's happening. And we want to pray for, our, for the leaders of the G20 summit that God in his grace will give them wisdom to make right and proper and good decisions. We, meet, we must pray and I've been praying for that. You see, these world leaders of the major advanced and emerging economies in the world are powerful people. The G20, 19 countries and the European Union. But powerful as these leaders are and their countries are in the world, they cannot be compared to God's power. They cannot be compared to God. Never. You see, the world faced its major economic challenges. The GFC. Today we face the threat of terrorism. Today we face the, the threat of Ebola. The point is, leaders will come and go. I was watching a documentary re- recently on the life of George uh, W. Uh, Bush Sr. Uh, the book was written. And you have all these photos in, in the library in the U.S. And all the past presidents, their photos are hanging there. They have come and gone. Come and gone. But look at this. The kingdom of God is an everlasting one. There is one king who is everlasting. Empires once powerful have crumbled and fallen. But there is one king who is eternal and his kingdom is untouchable. And if you are a Christian here this morning, then you belong to the kingdom of God. A kingdom that will never pass away. What a glorious thing that is. A kingdom that will one day be consummated. When? Come on. It's your call. When will that happen? Aha. Good. When Jesus 
returns. The kingdom will be consummated. And King Jesus, who is ruling now, will rule throughout in the new heavens and the new earth. And what a glorious thing that is to be of the eternal kingdom. Further, David praised God for his generosity. Look at verses 14 to 16 as we work our way through this psalm quickly. The greatest giver of all things. The Lord upholds all who are, who are fa- uh, fallen. He raises up all those who are bowed down. The eyes of all who look to you, you give them their food in due season. You open your hands. You satisfy the desires of every living thing. What a generous God is. Do you, do you believe so? How good is God? How generous has He been to us, friends? Has He not been generous to you? Think about that. What a generous God God is. I thought I heard a little no, but that's, that's all understandable. Eh? <laughs> it's all part of the family of God, isn't it? Here you see, friends. God's generosity raises those who are bowed down. He provides and He cares. He provides for all mankind. His greatest generosity is seen in the sending of His Son, Jesus, into this world. God so loved that He was stingy. Huh? God so loved that He gave. Our God has lavished us with His love. A generous God, generously lavishing us with every spiritual, wonderful blessing in Christ. I'm always amazed at that. How could God do that to a sinner like me? So as we think of God's generosity, let me ask you the question this morning. Are you a generous person? Can you see how God can use you to be a channel of His generosity to someone? I remember when I married Rose... I married now nearly 27 years in January. I married her and took her to Sri Lanka. Strange country, never been there. She thought it's going to be all fun and games, beautiful beaches and everything else. It does have, but we went right into the middle of the ethnic war. It was a challenging time. Both our daughters were born there. Extremely challenging. I would, if I had to do it again, I wouldn't take her like that. And she knows that. Anyway, while in Sri Lanka, Rose was, she, she wasn't allowed to work. There's the visa restrictions. And with one income, I could not afford to buy um, some nice goodies for her, especially when she was pregnant. I mean, she longed for some Western food, such as cheese and apples. Each time I see an apple in my fridge, I say to myself, eat it, eat this apple, because in Sri Lanka you couldn't afford it. And now I look at the thing, I say, well, just an apple. But God was generous to us. You know, often through the generosity of God's people, we would receive a box of goodies from Australia. Someone would put a $20 note in, uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in a card and send it to us. And they would say, go and buy some good things. And I used to go and get an apple, an orange, cheese that we used to cut so thin that you could see the sky on the other side. To manage the cheese. And these are facts, friends. God was generous. He provided. When we came, we came with nothing and God was generous. He provided the microwave and everything else. Anyway, the point is this. And you have your own story. You see, as a generous God, is never, never let his hand away from his people. Such a good, gracious, generous God. 
Uh, Philippians, Paul says, you know, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Do you trust him? See, do you trust this God? Put our lives in his hands, totally, fully and utterly in the sovereignty of this God who has been so good, so gracious, so loving, so amazing and so generous. Are you praising God for that this morning? Finally, his, his grace. You see, uh, verses 17 to 21. The Lord is righteous. You can read that text there. Uh, for the purpose of time, I won't read all these verses. You see, he's gracious. He's kind. He's near to all those who call on him. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. His loving is just. You see, David knows the grace of God. David knew what it means to fear this God as well. You see, Isaiah says this, isn't it? About the holiness of God. You see, God is to be feared because He is holy. See, life is not lived in the fear of God. Without the fear of God, it's kind of meaningless and leads to despair. In the book of Ecclesiastes, which book we are working our way through in the nights, in our evening service, the book of Ecclesiastes draws the distinction between life under sun and life under heaven. Life under sun is a life that ignores God. And life under heaven is a life that continues to put trust in God. And at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, we have this. The end of the matter, all that has been heard. What is it? Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment. You see, I must say this about the fear of God. Uh, Dr. Arsis Proud says this. He, dis- he talks about Martin Luther and he says this. Where Martin Luther distinguished between servile fear and filial fear. He described servile fear as that which, that kind of fear a, a prisoner has for his torture. Filial fear is the fear of a son who loves his father and does not want to offend him or let him down. It is a fear born of respect. When the Bible calls us to fear God, it is issuing a call to a fear born of reverence, of awe and adoration. It is a respect of the highest magnitude. See, David says, God fulfills the desires of those who fear him. Are you? His greatest desire was to be right with God. And David sinned. See, the Apostle Paul said this, that I am the chief of sinners. Remember that? Now, David, if there was one, if we were to apply the words of Paul to the Old Testament, who would you think was the greatest sinner of the Old Testament? I mean, you might come up with lots of names, but does it come to David? A man who sinned, adultery, murder indirectly, lied, everything else. And Psalm 51, David pours out and says, God, have mercy on me. And David experienced God's grace. And in the New Testament, we read this. When he removed him, he raised up David to be king of, to be their king of, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, this is God saying, the son of Jesse. What is it? A man after my heart. You see? David cries. David knew grace. He knew God's grace. 
on Friday morning, last Friday, in our growth group, those who are in the growth group, you will know, we looked at Titus chapter 2. And what does Titus chapter 2 say? In verse 11, you come on, you're in your growth groups, you should know Titus 2 just like that. You should be able to know. <laughs> Titus 2 verse 11 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Grace appears to us in Christ, friends. The grace of God has appeared. Christ is called grace. Is the grace of God invested and clothed with man's nature. When Christ appeared, the grace and mercy and love of God appeared. This God has shown his grace in his Son, the living word of God, who became flesh for us. So as I conclude this morning, let me come back to the question, what can I praise God for? Let me give you a scenario. What if each morning we prayed something like this? Something like this. Lord, I choose to be sold out to you today. And I want to praise and exalt you every day for your greatness, for your goodness, for your governance, for your generosity, for your grace to me. All of these things. To me, a sinner saved by grace. These five things. The goodness of God, the greatness of God, the governance of God, the generosity of God, the grace of God. All is embodied in Jesus. Imagine the transformation this could have on our outlook to life as we begin the day by giving praise and worship to this amazing God. David closed the psalm with these words, My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. And let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. How about us this morning? Come back to the question I began with. What can I praise God for? I'm going to leave this question with you to reflect and ponder. And for you to fill in the blank. It's a question for you to answer. And for me to answer. Some homework for us to do. Let me close. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness, for your greatness, your generosity, for your governance, that you are the king, for your kingdom, for your grace. I pray this morning that you will fill our hearts with praise to you, Lord, that our praise will come from deep within our souls today. As we think about the cross and the power of the cross of Christ, our amazing Savior, fill our hearts to praise you, Lord, for the remainder of our earthly life on earth and beyond. In Jesus' name, Amen.